The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 6 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and Labrador and beyond the Americas. 10 p.m. in London and Dublin, 11 p.m. in Warsaw and Budapest, midnight in Kiev and Moscow. Now in the same time zone, if not yet the same country. Uh, The Ukrainian government has in fact announced that it's uh, expelled all the Russians from the greater Kiev area and taken back that territory. Meanwhile, it's half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half hour time zone. 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu uh, for any of you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter hour time zone. 5 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm sorry about that. 8 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. A far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgery. And uh, it's almost the end of the weekend for our listeners in the Pacific. We observed All Fool's Day by certain back-end technical operations making a fool of yours truly and totally clobbering our Friday show. So belated happy All Fool's Day to you. Happy Poisson d'Avril to our Francophone listeners. Did you know it's a public holiday in Odessa? Uh, they usually have a parade in funny costumes and greet each other by saying, April the 1st, I trust nobody. <laughs> I'd wager the parade is off, but the greeting may have survived. So here we are a day late and uh, several dollars short. Uh, Rick McGuinness's movie date will be a couple of hours later today after we've shut up shop for the night. We also have our Doris Day observances for her centenary tomorrow. A little premature, but we're up there. And we will have a brand new tale for our time tomorrow, which I think you will like. Forty years ago today, the Argies invaded the Falklands. It was a consequential war that ended in a decisive victory for the good guys. Unlike the ghastly unwon wars waged this century by thoroughly modern Millie and his beribboned trannies, I'm happy to take any questions you might have on that. Uh, you might have heard me with... Uh, Uh, Lieutenant General uh, Jonathan Riley uh, talking about that on the Mark Stein show on Friday. Okay, let's get to it. Frank Hughes says, I was in Vermont recently on town meeting day and all the local news outlets did stories on how the number of towns participating has continued to drop sharply over the last decade. You've spoken of your fondness for this form of democracy in New Hampshire. What are your thoughts about this trend? 
Um, yeah, very uh, interesting. It's not actually the same in New Hampshire. I think you're referring to those towns that uh, vote by Australian ballot, so-called, and those towns that have uh, old-fashioned town meetings with a town warrant and you vote on all the items as you go through it, which which my town does. But, for example, uh, Laurie, who many of you will know because uh, she works on the Mark Stein Club and uh, on these shows, and some of you have met her on cruises and Christmas shows and other events. Uh, Laurie uh, moved recently, uh, and for the first time, she'd always lived in one of these Vermont Australian ballot times towns, and uh, now she's suddenly, for the first time, in a town with a proper old-fashioned so-called town meeting, and <laughs> finding it rather different. Yeah, I am not saying anything that you know Alexis de Tocqueville didn't say that town meeting town town meeting is uh, part of the reason why there was a revolution because. Uh, far away from the metropolis in the American colonies, the American settlers had learned to govern themselves by a highly localized form of democracy where you elect everybody, where, for example, in my town, the sexton, uh, which isn't just an ecclesiastical office, that's to say, yes, he does maintain the town cemetery and and so forth, but he also mows those nice little... Uh, triangles where a small road meets a big road and uh, you have some flowers growing on a triangle uh, in between the lanes uh, at the junction. Uh, So you elect everybody. You elect everybody. And Tocqueville thought it was the best system of government, uh, as did I, in part because it means that if you've got an issue with if the your school wants to teach critical race theory, you call the school board members up uh, in the evening and uh, tell them you're unhappy about that. Remote government will always, always, almost always, 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 always be bad government. And that's why until, you know, Woodrow Wilson, well, no, really until FDR, for the most part, the president to many Americans, was no different than the Queen is to those uh, surly and ungrateful Jamaicans, a distant figure who didn't obtrude into their lives terribly much. Now the distant figure obtrudes into your life every bloody day of the week, every minute of the day. He's doing something. His federal government and his alphabet agencies are doing something. And that has rendered a lot of town me. I mean, what what's the line they always have on New Hampshire, 240 sugarbush republics uh, pretending to be a state. There's a lot of truth to that. It's a lot more decentralized. A lot more is done at town level in New Hampshire than is done in Vermont, uh, as opposed to being done at county or state level. But either way, these days, increasingly, most of it is done by the laughably misnamed federal government, which is, in fact, a central government and is increasingly interested in imposing one-size-fits-all public policies everywhere from uh, Maine to Hawaii, which is a disaster and will eventually lead to the end of America. But when it works, when it works, and it doesn't always work, and, you know, uh, almost any American who's lived in a town with town government 
will have stories about this to one degree or another. But when it works, it is the best form of government. As I said, remote government will almost always be bad government. I mean, for a start now, you know, we're not even comparing elected offices in a small New Hampshire town with elective offices far away in Washington, D.C. Increasingly, we're comparing elective offices with entirely non-elective offices. The story of the, the Trump administration is that uh, half those people, like Colonel Vindman, the ludicrous Ukrainian figure in the uh, Trump impeachment, half these guys, or was it the second Trump impeachment? So hard to keep up, isn't it? Um, whichever one he was in. But his view seemed to be, and, his, and indeed the view of those uh, foggy bottom types in the first impeachment, is that essential elements of policy, such as Ukraine policy, uh, <laughs> and if you thought it was odd we were talking about Ukraine for a year and a half, well, now you know why. Um, those fellows seem to think that Ukraine policy should be entirely separated from the will of the people. So you can elect uh, these persons to various offices, but the permanent government goes on regardless, and there's nothing good that is going to come of that. Johnny B says, Hi, Mark. Dickie Arbiter is very relaxed about the impending loss of the Commonwealth. At least he seems to be in agreement with one of the heirs to the throne, this was uh, His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge in Jamaica who mused that he wasn't sure he really wanted to be head of the Commonwealth because he wasn't comfortable telling people what to do. Your heir to uh, your your heir to thrones all over the globe, right? Uh, the constitutions of those countries say that executive authority is invested in you. The headship of the Commonwealth, which is constitutionally nebulous, or if you're an Enoch Powell fan, a constitutional abomination, is, uh, is a slightly different thing because it's a, as I said, it's a very nebulous thing. I, I would hardly, if, if, if he really thinks that's telling people what to do, uh, it's all a nudge and a wink and a bit of persuasion. But anyway, uh, you're right about that. He wants to check out of the whole deal. Johnny B says, I wouldn't like Prince William in charge of the family farm. By the way, isn't the phrase greatest nation in the history of the world as frequently applied to the United States past its sell-by date? Well, actually, uh, that's very interesting to me. I notice that a lot of these people who've replaced Rush... Uh, for example, on the radio at lunchtime, they always begin by saying, coming to you live from the greatest country in the history of the world. And I, I'm, I blow hot and cold on that because the one thing I think it's touch, it's touching that Americans uh, very uniquely in a way, at least among the Western world, can actually come out and just say that in a way that certainly people uh, in the United Kingdom in, in the United Kingdom uh, don't. Which nation deserved that title, continues Johnny B. Surely Great Britain uh, from Wilberforce up until a hundred years ago. Uh, he's talking about the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland uh, 
uh, more or less un- until uh, the, uh, the the in the uh, south of Ireland they checked out in 1922. George Washington had his own thoughts. If defeated everywhere else, I would make my last stand for liberty among the Scotch-Irish of my native Virginia. Best wishes, John. I would make my last stand for liberty among the Scotch-Irish of my native Virginia. You know, the, the, uh, that's a sad line to me because if you go to Virginia now, uh, you'll have a hard time finding Scotch-Irish. You will. It's, it's a state that, because of its proximity to Washington, D.C., has been very, very heavily impacted by uh, demographic transformation in the form of mass immigration. And so, and so it's, it's easy to be nostalgic about a line like that. But we should realize, uh, and it's actually, but you know, by the way, when he means Scotch-Irish, he's talking about, uh, you know, Ulster Protestants. <laughs> so it's interesting. Ulster Protestants, Johnny B. knows about this. Uh, Ulster Protestants are in some way the most unfashionable people on the face of the earth uh, when it comes to being a victim group since the uh, Afrikaners in South Africa and the white Rhodesians went uh, belly up uh, uh, a generation or so back. Um, but it, it, So it's interesting to me that the Ulster, Ulster Protestants don't get a lot of sympathy um, from anybody else, but they apparently do from the father of the United States, George Washington. And uh, and. Uh, just just to emphasize what I said, you know, we can be romantic about Virginia, as people were, if you recall, after 9-11, when they were saying, ah, ha, 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 those jihadists, Muhammad Atta, he got it all wrong. When he goes to paradise, he doesn't get 72 virgins, he gets 72 Virginians. Ha, 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 ha. And they were thinking of George Washington and his Scotch-Irish. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that if you look at what's happening across the border now, for example, um, the Department of Homeland Security has calculated that, and they've just done, they mentioned this as an aside because they're trying to calculate how many uh, express check-in clerks they're going to need on the Rio Grande. Uh, they're expe- and, and they're making provisions for this in the budget. Uh, in Joe Biden's budget, they're making provisions to let all these people in, give them welfare and other benefits. They're expecting three and a half million people to walk into the express check-in at the Rio Grande and then into the American interior between now and the end of the fiscal year, which I believe is September 30th. So that's uh, April, May, June, July, August, September. So that's in six months, three and a half million people. That's seven million undocumented immigrants, illegal immigrants, Mass unskilled immigrants, three and a half million in six months, that's seven million a year. You know, there are countries, they're not the greatest nations in the history of the world, as uh, Johnny B puts it, uh, but they they do okay. Norway and uh, New Zealand, that's more than the uh, population of Norway or more than the population of New Zealand. You know, Trump, Trump, 
Do you remember Trump, one of those lines they went on at him when he said, why don't we, he looked at the sources of American immigration and wanted to know why we didn't get any immigrants from non-bleephole countries like Norway. Norway was his example. Well, you know, Norway would be a drop in the ocean of American immigration and you wouldn't even notice it. So you'd say, okay, we've imported all five million Norwegians. Uh, what do we do next, Mr. President? Are we going to go back to the bleep holes? Seven million people a year just walking into the country. You've no idea who they are, except they're very welfare dependent. They have higher rates of COVID infection, which we're all supposed to be terrified about, than the native population. And many of them are drug cartels, and many of them are terrorists, and many of them are MS-13 gang members, and many of them are sex slavers. How many, how long does 7 million people a year have to go on for before you've lost your country? And if you just take any old 7 million who walk in across the Rio Grande, what are your chances? of being the greatest country in the history of the world. Really, you know. That was a very interesting point that Trump made, but the answer to it, it's a lot of it is arithmetic, which is amazingly, I'm not any kind of mathematician, but I can add up. And as I said, that would, seven million would be a lot for a European country, uh, for any Commonwealth country uh, apart from uh, South Africa, Nigeria, Pakistan, and a few others. Um, but how long does it have to go on for but before you've lost your the greatest country in the history of the world, and there's seven million people arriving every year who have no idea of your history. Odd, 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 odd too that Americans put up with it. And again, I think it goes back to that town meeting thing. You know, where do they have to settle to make the number of... Because people think the votes in the uh, electoral college or for the disbursement of uh, welfare in particular are done on the basis of uh, lawful citizens or lawful residents. They're not. Uh, illegal immigrants count for how much of the federal moolah you get. So pretty soon, I mean, as I said, 7 million people, if while we're talking about Vermont, it's, uh, it, it, that's basically 12 times the population of Vermont, 12 times the population of a state with one uh, congressman, uh, two senators, and they're just walking in every year. How long does that have to go on for? Oh, yes. No, no, you don't get it. When we say comprehensive immigration reform, what we mean is hiring a lot more people uh, to give all the people coming in across the Rio Grande uh, passes to board planes and fly them to uh, and, and fly them to red states to overwhelm what's left of conservatism in those states. G. Whitesmith writes, G. Whitesmith, 
Nice to hear from you. G. Whitesmith writes, Mark, do you think there is a woke versus traditional battlefield at Windsor Castle? It seemed like Prince William and his lovely Kate were the anti-Charles, anti-Harry, but this latest trip makes me worried. Do you think the noble essence of the British monarchy will die along with Queen Elizabeth? Long may she reign. Well, as I suggested uh, to, to on the Mark Stein show last week, I think the advantage for Harry, for William, when Harry and Meghan were around, was that Harry became the bad cop to William's good cop. So because Harry had taken up with uh, this uh, woman entirely unsuited for the role and was uh, talking all this rubbish uh, and was behaving appallingly, uh, he looked good by comparison. Then suddenly he's in Jamaica and the Bahamas and he starts saying things that could come straight out of Harry's mouth. I don't think there's a woke versus traditional battlefield at Windsor going on. And I'll tell you why. I think for the first time these last six months, for whatever reason, it might just be that she's getting on a bit. But for the first time in 70 years, the Queen seems exhausted by the job. And she's retreating to smaller and smaller smaller and smaller spaces. Basically, she didn't see anyone these last six months except for Justin Trudeau. She doesn't see her UK prime minister in person. That's done by Zoom. The only one of her prime ministers she's seen in person in the last six months has been Justin Trudeau. And I doubt she will ever set foot in Canada again. She's given up all long-haul travel, and now, frankly, she seems to be giving up short-haul travel except for certain military anniversaries, Uh, not the Falklands, but Second World War uh, anniversaries that are personally important to her. So I, I wish it were a woke versus traditional battlefield because I would bet on the Queen if that were going on. But I think there's a void on the traditional side, and I think the Prince of Wales and his two sons largely see eye to eye on a lot of this nonsense. And I think there is great peril. There is great peril for the monarchy moving forward. You know, I often say monarchy is, is, the, is basically the default setting of society. You can, you can have a, a different kinds of monarchies. You can have basically uh, an hereditary monarchy that calls itself a president, uh, like uh, uh, the Assads in Syria or Kim Jong-un's uh, family in North Korea. You can uh, also have elective monarchies, which is basically what the French presidency is. Uh, You can have one-man psycho states, which are the nearest thing we have to truly absolute absolute monarchies these days. But a monarchy, so monarchy is the default setting of society. A a genuine republic is, in the famous line, uh, hard to keep. And I couldn't honestly say that what passes itself off as a republic in Washington is actually a genuine republic uh, anymore. John Barrett says, hi, Mark, here's a little change of pace question. 
you talked about your car being disabled at the Ukrainian border. What on earth did you do? Hitchhike on the M24 to Berehove? I think club members might like to hear more of your on-the-road adventures, travel, logistics, language, accommodations, and so on. Most of us wouldn't dare attempt something like this. How did you do it? Thanks, John. Well, no, that's true. I talked about the, the, the GPS tells the, uh, who, who, I can't remember now, was it Hertz or Avis? Whoever it was, Hertz, I think, uh, in Budapest where I rented the car. The GPS tells Hertz at uh, Budapest that you're on the Ukrainian border and they uh, switch off the car. Uh, so I, I wasn't going to be uh, put off by anything like that. So we walk into Ukraine, which is very pleasant, actually. I'll tell you something. The Hungary-Ukraine border is a lot more pleasant than the Canadian-American border uh, or flying uh, into Logan Airport, Boston, or whatever you want to say. It was very, the, the young lady was absolutely delightful. Uh, and so we're doing we, 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 we get into the the country and you can tell you don't really need a sign saying that Hungary has ended and Ukraine has begun because the road just turns to it's just full of holes and it's uh, it, you know you can tell you suddenly in fact my cameraman compared it with his trip to Rwanda <laughs> that's what he thought of it everything looks poorer and more broken there are Beggars, you're, you're in the middle of nowhere, but there are beggars waiting to greet the rich Westerners who've crossed into the country. Then there are these guys like in black uh, suburbans with tinted windows who, you know, if you saw that in America, it would be some wanker congressman uh, and his uh, parts of his entourage. But in when you're in Ukraine, it's some, you know, guys from a militia eyeing you up as to whether you'd make a good hostage or whatever. And it was at that point that I met Maria, uh, whom uh, some of you will know, uh, who was on our show uh, that week. And she does that shuttling back and forth across the border to pick up medical supplies to deliver to the troops in uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, so that's how we and she has uh, what, what did she what did she have? She had a uh, it was it was also an SUV, but it wasn't a suburban. It was uh, I think it was uh, was it a, I think it was a Mercedes SUV. Uh, uh, so she she uh, just because it's easier to get it impresses them on the Hungarian side. So anyway, uh, that's uh, that's who shuttled us the seven miles into the town of Berehove. I'm going on and on about that. I, I could do a whole uh, lot of uh, stuff about that. You, you you have to be, you know, there are there are the militia members who are just like roughnecks you might meet in a pub somewhere, uh, even if they're you know neo-Nazi uh, roughnecks or whatever. But then there are the more sinister fellows driving around in the uh, big black SUVs. You always have to stay on your toes. Uh, Glenn Flint says, Mark, Mark, thanks for getting us all through these crazy times. One simple request. 
One simple request. I'd like to hear the Durham report theme one more time. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry, Glenn. I didn't say the words Durham report correctly. Let me let me see if I can try it again. <laughs> Just let me clear my throat here. The Durham report. The Durham report. The Durham report. Exhausted now. David Maxwell says, I second that request. I love the John Durham theme song. It gets better the longer the farce that is the Durham report goes on. I could also go for another play of Kung Flu Fighting. Yeah, I don't think we've played that yet this year, David, uh, which is uh, unusual. Um, I should have, uh, I, I blow hot and cold on these things because there are a lot of who, there was one guy. I think he was in Canada somewhere, who really doesn't like uh, that kind of thing. And so he doesn't want to hear Kung Flu fighting or the Durham Report intro. I'll tell you who, uh, what thrilled me the other night on telly is the way David Starkey brought up the Durham Report, by which he meant Lord Durham's report on British North America, the one that led to responsible government in 1848 in Nova Scotia. And as I pointed out to him, has basically been replicated around the globe. If you look at the 1867 uh, British North America Act, the Canadian Constitution, and then you go look at where, uh, well, for example, where the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge were a couple of days ago, Belize, which became independent in the 1980s. And yet, even though that's a 140 years after the Durham report, uh, the, the, uh, it's got basically word for word an almost identical constitution, almost as if they just photo run it off the photocopier and put our insert name of Her Majesty's Dominion here. So I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled, when David Starkey referred to Lord Durham's report from uh, whatever it is now, 175, a century and three quarters or whatever it is back, and uh, 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 by which he meant Lord Durham's report and not John Durham's report, which is taking a century and three quarters, but to absolutely minimal effect. So maybe we will start to revive the Durham report. Kate Smythe writes from Down Under. Mark, do you think the West, with its woke preoccupations, is history? And from a geopolitical perspective, is Pax Americana now over? As you've noted on GB News, China's insidious debt-based imperialism with CCP ownership of key sovereign assets throughout the Commonwealth has succeeded largely under the radar. The PRC is also asserting influence through its diaspora. Diaspora populations in the West, 
Beijing does not recognize dual nationality, even if dual citizens do, as highlighted by the case of a detained Hong Kong Australian who is facing prosecution for subversion. I was in the Solomon Islands five years ago, says Kate, and visited the Guadalcanal American War Memorial before leaving. And it is somewhat surreal to me that Honiara has signed a security pact with Beijing. Should the West have been more geopolitically proactive in recent decades, or was retreat by self-described white supremacists always inevitable? No, it wasn't inevitable, and the self-described white supremacists uh, is a good reason why these people are moving on. When you hate yourself, uh, when you announce that you hate yourself, you revile yourself, you revile your inheritance Why would you expect uh, citizens of remote islands across the oceans to have any more respect for that inheritance than you do? This has been supreme folly. And as you point out, this is a very cost-effective form of imperialism because all these countries are foolish enough to think of themselves as independent sovereign entities because, in part, the Commonwealth tells little islands that you're completely equal to the mother country. And uh, or in the Pacific, that the Solomon Islands is the equal of Australia. So these people think they're negotiating as sovereign entities. And as you point out, China is just signing them up uh, on the basis of debt-based imperialism. Now, it's bought America through debt. America is the broke, brokey, brokiest entity in the history of brokenness. And that has what has, is what has enabled China's rise. And they figure, hey, look, if we could sucker the Americans like that, maybe uh, we could sucker some of these smaller countries into it too. It's really, it's so sad, it's so depressing. As I said, it's hard to get a lot of Americans interested in it because they don't know what the Commonwealth is and it's a fairly abstruse concept even if you explain it to them. They, They seem to think that the British Empire sort of collapsed, imploded and ceased to exist. And so this Commonwealth... Uh, is uh, is a mysterious and and uh, difficult to grasp concept, but to put it in American terms, you've had this thing called the Monroe Doctrine for a couple of centuries now, since uh, President Monroe, oddly enough, and uh, that applies to the Americas, which you regard as your sphere of influence, your backyard, and yet China is gobbling up the Americas, and uh, Joe Biden is on the take for it, and all the uh, nice, sensible people on the American, George Papadopoulos, and uh, all these uh, people who are you, Chris Wallace at CNN Plus, for the three of you who've subscribed to Chris's show, uh, all these people uh, never have anything, aren't aware of it, never have anything to say about it, don't think it's an issue. China's basically nullified the Monroe Doctrine. How about that? How about that? Uh, Well, we will have more of your questions uh, coming up. But first, uh, as always, a sense of proportion. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. The Last Emperor... A bloodbath in Bavaria and cut. 
cut up your banknotes. It's April 1922. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the last Habsburg emperor is dead. Charles, or King Karoy, as he was known in Hungary, expired from respiratory failure in exile on the Portuguese island of Madeira, where HMS Cardiff had deposited him after last year's abortive attempt to reclaim his Budapest throne. Last month, he caught a cold while out and about in the town. The cold worsened into bronchitis. The bronchitis worsened into pneumonia. His empress, pregnant with their eighth child, and the nine-year-old Crown Prince Otto were at his deathbed, and he was conscious almost to the end, his last words being addressed to Empress Zita, I love you so much. Otto now succeeds him as the rightful Austro-Hungarian emperor, although under Austrian law he is merely Herr Otto von Habsburg. Charles will rest in eternity on Madeira, although as is traditional for Habsburg monarchs, his heart has been removed for separate burial in Hungary. The former emperor was 34. In the late emperor's former realm of Hungary, the post-Habsburg settlement is proving somewhat violent. A bomb loaded with sharp metal needles exploded at a Democratic Club dinner in Budapest for members of the country's Liberal Party. Eight diners are dead, including one man blown entirely apart. Many others were injured including at least one diner so badly burned that he crashed through the window and fell to the street below, smashing all his limbs. All the victims are Jewish. The bomb was placed near the seat of the leader of the opposition in the Hungarian parliament, Karoi Rasse, but he had not yet arrived when it went off. Six people have been found dead in a gruesome murder at the Gruber family farmstead at Hinterkaifeck, about 40 miles north of Munich. Four bodies were stacked up in the barn, with the youngest victim dead in his bassinet and the family maid dead in her bed. Four days passed between the killings and the discovery of the bodies, and in that time multiple persons tramped around the scene and even ate in the kitchen, which has not helped the police. There were dark rumours from the neighbours about Munich newspapers to which nobody local subscribed that have been found on the property, and the previous maid is believed to have quit because she believed a stranger was living in the attic. Does Bolshevik Russia have a new coming man? Joseph Stalin is the first to bear the new title of General Secretary of the Communist Party and is said by some to be regarded by Vladimir Lenin 
as his eventual successor many years in the future. Every morning, every evening, ain't we got fun? Not much money, oh, but money. Not much money, oh, but honey, do we have fun cutting up the little we do have? The government of Greece has ordered its citizens literally to cut their banknotes in half. The right half of the drachmas, the side with the coat of arms on, can be taken to the bank to be exchanged for new notes at half value. The left side of the note has to be turned into the bank for a government bond with a 6.5% annual interest rate. This unusual action is intended to reduce the government deficit. Well, it's different. In the Emerald Isle, His Majesty's government has formally transferred all functions of the stillborn government of Southern Ireland to the new provisional government of the Irish Free State. Violence continues to threaten the fragile peace in retaliation for the fatal shooting of George Turner of the Royal Irish Constabulary by a sniper Five Catholic men and a seven-year-old boy have been killed in Arnon Street in Belfast. Michael Collins has sent an angry telegram to his northern counterpart, Sir James Craig, demanding a full inquiry. Wait till you get them up in the air, boy. Wait till you get them up in the air. You can make them hug and squeeze you too. Or if they don't, just say you won't come down until they do. Wait till you get them up in the clouds, boy. There won't be anyone to watch you there. You can loop the loop till she can hardly get her breath. It isn't hard to reason with a girl who's scared to death. So wait till you get them up in the air, boy. Up, up. Up, up, way up in the air. Wait till you get them up in the air with an air chief marshal. Do you know what that is? It's a very senior rank in the Royal Air Force, which only just a couple of years ago was simply going to use Royal Navy ranks, but with the word air in front of them, such as Air Admiral. Instead, they went another route, and the Chief of the Air Staff, Sir Hugh Trenchard, will now be the first man in the British Empire's emerging air forces to hold the newly created rank of Air Chief Marshal. For the first time ever, two airplanes have crashed into each each other in the sky over Picardy in France. A Grand Express Aérien Farman F-60 called Goliath was ferrying three people in its new London to Paris passenger service not yet a week old. It collided with a Daimler Airway de Havilland DH-18 carrying mail at an altitude of 500 feet. All seven people aboard the two planes were killed. You 
now love her by radio in New Mexico. The first licensed station in that state is on the air. KOB in Las Cruces, run out of the engineering school at the New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts. Can you love her by radio when the fellow on air is quite so opinionated? In New York, Mr. H.V. Kaltenborn has become the first person to broadcast an editorial opinion over the air on station WVP. His newspaper, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, is sponsoring what he calls spoken editorials. The first being his view of the walkout by 500,000 members of the United Mine Workers of America across 26 states. Mr. Kaltenborn analysed the strike from the viewpoints of a miner, a mine owner and an average citizen. We shall see if the novelty of opinions on the radio catches on. Everybody loves a baby, that's why I'm in love with you. Pretty baby, pretty baby. And I'd like to be your sister, brother, dad and mother too. Pretty baby, pretty baby. Won't you come and let me rock you in my cradle of love And we'll cuddle all the time Oh, I want to love and baby and it might as well be you Pretty baby of mine. Actually, not everybody loves a baby. Last year at the first American birth control conference, birth control advocate Margaret Sanger announced the launch of the American Birth Control League. The organization has now been formally incorporated in New York with offices on Fifth Avenue. Its charter holds that children should be one, conceived in love, two, born of the mother's conscious desire, three, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception except when these conditions can be satisfied. If you, quote, prevent conception, what does that free you up to do instead? Well, in Germany, the Reichstag has approved a bill that will permit women to serve on juries. So gentlemen of the jury will now be ladies and gentlemen of the jury. The rarest postage stamp in the world is a British Guiana one-cent magenta. It has been sold at auction in Paris for a record high price of 300,000 French francs plus another 52,500 francs in tax. And then he'd roll, roll, roll Way up the river he would roll, roll, roll A hunky-dipper then he'd kiss her now and then He would tell him when He'd fool around and fool around And then they'd kiss again And then he'd roll, roll, roll a little further he would roll, oh, 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 oh. Then he'd drop both his oars, take a few more encores, and then he'd roll, roll, roll. 
They row, row, rowed way up the River Thames, and they won. In the 74th boat race, the light blues Cambridge beat the dark blues Oxford by four and a half lengths. Also in sports news, Morton Football Club have won the Scottish Cup, defeating Rangers 1-0 at Hampton Park. The original Celtics, a New York team, have won the championship of the Eastern Basketball League, the premier professional league in America. They defeated the Trenton Potters of New Jersey, 27-22 at Camden, to take the series 2-1. Oh, do it again. They're saying no, no, no. Do it again. Spring car driver Sig Haugdahl and officials of the International Motor Contest Association reported that Mr Haugdahl had broken the record for fastest speed on land and had reached 180 miles per hour while driving a 250 horsepower car at the Daytona Beach Road course in Florida. But the speed was not timed by the American Automobile Association and so was rejected because it was unverifiable. The claimed speed of 180 miles per hour was 45% faster than the official record of 124 miles per hour set by Lidston Hornstead in 1914. The Firestone Tire and Rubber Company has introduced the Balloon Tire, a thicker but more flexible tire that requires less air pressure for full inflation, uh, can bear more weight and is more durable. Plus, the Firestone Balloon is thick enough to have lettering in raised letters on the tire itself, if you like that sort of thing. All over nothing at all. Or maybe not. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Beck was a distinguished military officer from the US Army Air Service and a strong advocate for an air force separate from other branches of the military, as is the aforementioned Royal Air Force. He is dead at the hands of his friend, Gene Day, a retired judge of the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Judge Day claims to have returned home to see Colonel Beck making sexual advances to Mrs. Day. The judge retrieved his revolver, ordered the colonel to leave, and when Beck drew his fist, bashed him on the head with the gun. The weapon discharged, and Paul Beck fell dead. The coroner's jury has ruled that the judge was justified in shooting the colonel. The army says he died in the line of duty and will be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Jane Bunford of Bartley Green in Birmingham, England, was the tallest woman of all time. On her 21st birthday, she was measured at 7 foot 10 and grew another inch thereafter, despite severe spine curvature. Miss Bunford is dead of hyperpituitarism and gigantism at 26. She will be buried in a coffin that is 8 foot 2 in length 
and the longest ever made in the British Isles. Hermann Rorschach was a Swiss psychoanalyst who invented the so-called Rorschach test, by which he would hand you an ink blot and ask what you saw in it. Herr Rorschach is dead at 37 of peritonitis from a ruptured appendix. No idea what that ink blot would look like. A.V. Dicey, K.C., was the most respected authority on the British Constitution, to the point where his 1885 book on the subject is regarded by courts as virtually part of that Constitution. He popularised the phrase, the rule of law, which in turn helped popularise the concept. Mr Dicey is dead at the age of 87. Ramabai Sarasvati was the first woman to be awarded the title of Pandita as a Sanskrit scholar and a campaigner for women's rights in India. Her first book in English, The High Caste Hindu Woman, shed sometimes unwelcome light on practices such as child marriage, and she was honoured just three years ago by the King Emperor with the Kaiser E. Hind medal. Pandita Ramabai is dead at 63. General Erich von Falkenhayn was chief of the German general staff and promised the Kaiser he would win the World War within two years. It didn't quite work out like that, and two years in... He was removed after failures at Verdun and the Somme. General von Falkenhayn is dead at 60. Aaron Ross was a stagecoach driver and railroad guard legendary for seeing off multiple would-be robberies. In 1867 in Montana, his stage was attacked by 25 Indians whom he successfully repulsed, killing five. A decade later, during another attack in Montana, he shot and killed the outlaw Big Jack Davis in 1883. Guarding a train carrying $80,000 in gold bullion, he told a gang of would-be robbers in Nevada, threatening to burn him out during a five-hour standoff, that he would see them in a hotter place. And then he shot three of them. Aaron Ross is dead at 93. And that's the way of the world, April 1922. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, that's not the end of our centenary celebrations. We're also celebrating uh, this very weekend the 100th anniversary of the birth of Doris Day. Uh, both my take and a rather different take by our regular film uh, columnist, Rick McGuinness. So I hope you'll uh, check that out. We're not done with centenaries yet. We'll have a little bit more before we go. I'm sorry about... I do apologise for some of the technical problems we've been having. Um, I'm, I'm wearying of the internet, really. I'm not cut out for it. I'd love to go back to the pre-internet world of 1977 or whatever it was. Let's get back to your questions. Drew Weber says, Mark, will the Dems ever run out of sub-segments of our population to claim as oppressed and then elevate to privileged status? If yes, what would they do with all that time on their hands? Let me come at this in a slightly roundabout way, Drew. Yes, yes. Yes, if it was just left to the number of uh, Muslims in America or the number of uh, lesbians in America, they would eventually run out. 
But look at what they're doing in Florida, where the governor and the legislature have passed this bill, which the rest of the country thinks is a bill forbidding you from saying the word gay. So we're, 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 the media are engaging in as basic a, uh, a, mis, uh, a misconception of that uh, legislation as you can get. What it actually says is you can't be talking about uh, uh, sexual matters to kindergartners, first, second, third graders, right? This is one of the things you wouldn't even you wouldn't need to pass legislation like this if the country weren't already done. Uh, and evil and depraved. We have to pass it now um, because, in fact, the majority of the country, probably if you took a vote on this, would actually uh, be in be in in favor of reversing. And certainly the judges before whom this legislation will come will be in favor of reversing it. Now, all over ABC, CBS, etc., you see these teary gay kindergartners who say, oh, well, I look on my little charges almost as if they're my children. And, uh, and then when they ask, sir, 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 what did you do over the weekend? And I was uh, lying in bed with my husband, Fred, uh, on Sunday morning till lunchtime, and we just thought, oh, to hell with it. Let's just stay in bed and shag the day away. And I'm not allowed to mention it. Uh, and so I feel I'm now having to suppress my eye. I never knew a thing about what my teachers did at weekends or with whom. I mean, when we got a little older, I don't mean, you know, five or six, but I'm thinking of 13, 14, 15, we were want to speculate on the inclinations of our teachers, but we did so without a lot of evidence, certainly not without anything, not, not without knowing anywhere they went or anything they did uh, in that respect or who they did it with. Um, but we now, uh, we now have teachers who uh, think that it's normal uh, to... Uh, to, to, to talk about anal sex uh, to six- and seven-year-olds. Now, I, I take it most of you listening to this are older than six or seven. Uh, but even so, I don't have no particular desire you know, to talk about anal sex. Uh, I, I'm not entirely clear why that should be an uh, issue. Whenever I think of anal sex, I always think of Christopher Hitchens because I remember him saying in that very languid drawl of his that he put uh, anal sex in the same category as picnics, things that are just far more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> Which is a funny line. Wit, remember wit? Sir Thomas Beecham, uh, one should try everything in life at least once. Uh, except incest and Morris dancing. Witty people. Now, uh, now the bulk of the American establishment thinks you should be able to talk about uh, anal sex to kindergartners. You know, our education, public education in America, is an almost total waste of time. As I've said before, uh, Chinese uh, grade schoolers learn mathematics. Californian grade schoolers learn that mathematics is racist and part of white privilege. So who do you think the future's going to belong to? You know, 
because we're moronizing our kids. But let's take it to the next level. And in the brief amount of time in the school curriculum, when we're not moronizing them, let's actually confuse and traumatize them. If you were to talk to a six-year-old about anal sex in any other, like if you walk into uh, McDonald's and see a couple of kids uh, sitting at a table, uh, go up to them and start talking about the joys of anal sex and uh, see how long it is before someone calls the cops on you. But uh, but apparently all these teachers now feel they're being suppressed because they don't have the right to talk to six- and seven-year-olds about the joys of anal sex or the joys of transitioning. Oh, yes, I, I saw you. You picked up that doll for a minute. Little, little nice curly-headed doll, Jimmy. And then you put the doll down. You don't have to. You don't have to put the doll down. If you feel uncomfortable about the fact that you enjoy playing with dolls, there's no need for Actually, I just uh, picked it up. I thought it was G.I. Joe, and I didn't realize until I don't want, I want to play with G.I. No, you don't have to play with G.I. Joe. Why don't you just start playing with that Barbie? And by the way, uh, I'll, uh, I'll write you a script, and you can pick up some puberty blockers on the way home. It is difficult not to... Uh, not to think of this society as fundamentally depraved when uh, we are now having a national conversation excoriating one state for prohibiting the sexualization, the dis- what's really the demolition of childhood uh, by this hyper-premature sexualize- sexualizing, boutique sexualizing, uh, at the hands of uh, the, uh, an activist class that, as Drew says, uh, doesn't have enough sub-segments of our population for its needs. So if they just bollocks up the generality of our children, uh, then they will be able to complete their job, which is the demolition not just the demolition of childhood, but the demolition of all the building blocks of functioning societies, to put everything out there and up for grabs. So that you say to your kid, uh, what did you do in school today, Jimmy? Well, we were, we were taught that math is uh, racist. Oh, yeah, but didn't you do that? Yes, sir. yeah, yeah. Oh, and the other thing is, uh, Mommy, um, teacher said to me that uh, anal sex is, uh, is really good and uh, I should try it. What? Uh, really? Oh, and, and also, I'm, I don't know that I am Jimmy. I'd like to be called Jemima. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, okay. I don't want to question... I don't want to question anything the experts say. Depraved, depraved, depraved. Not sure how much longer. But that's the thing, Drew. Yeah, they know there aren't enough boutique segments of society to build a majority and overturn everything. So bollocksing up the kid. And let's not wait until university. Let's not wait until high school. Let's not wait until middle school. Let's actually start in kindergarten. That's what this is about. Uh, Eric Dale says, Hey, Mark and fellow club members, why is it so difficult for us in the West to self-correct our countries? It seems every year our elites are 
uh, more and more open that elections and public opinion are mere suggestions, while the real decisions are made by an ever more distant governing class. It'd be one thing if the governing class were actually good stewards of our nations, but we seem doomed to repeat a cycle of one crisis after another. Uh, well, you know what that's about, Eric. It gets gets back a bit to what I was saying about town meeting uh, and republics, if you can keep them uh, at the beginning of at the beginning of the show. If it were just elites versus the masses, it wouldn't be much of a a contest because obviously there's far more masses than elites. But it's not though. It's elites and half the masses against the rest of the masses, and. Uh, the reason for that is, uh, and again, this gets to why republics are difficult, and republics are particularly difficult in a mass media age, uh, where it's not just that you're subject to nationwide social engineering by uh, having to learn about uh, chopping off your meat and two veg in second grade. Um, and again, the fact that that most... Yes, there's activist parents pushing back at the school boards, but it's not the majority, is it? And you know that when you actually talk it out uh, out with any of these people who listen to NPR or uh, watch the Today Show or whatever, oh, you're just getting a bit uptight. Why don't you just chill, man? What 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 can possibly go wrong? Uh, and it's not just that, but it's also the, the, the susceptibility to mass media. For example, the Disney General Entertainment president, this woman, the clip I played uh, on the show, uh, on the uh, Stein show on telly uh, the other night, who says uh, she's the mother of two queer children, uh, one transgender and one pansexual, and that's why she's insisting on 50% of characters in Disney uh films and projects uh, now will be LGBT QWERTY. Um, if you think, uh, and, and that's an interesting thing too, in that it's moving from the elites uh, who can afford the boutique transgender uh, child. Um, if you, uh, what's her name? Jamie Lee Curtis uh, has got uh, a uh, transgender uh, child. I uh, can't remember whether it's male to female or female to male. And uh, Warren Beatty has got a transgender child. I think I can't remember whether that's male to female or female to male. But they're becoming from they're like a boutique celebrity thing, and now and now spreading downward. And the Jamie Lee Curtis thing is interesting to me because Jamie Lee Curtis's dad, of course. Uh, wore a dress all through uh, the film Some Like It Hot, in which he and Jack Lemmon are pretending to be members of an all-girl band with Marilyn Monroe. That's why uh, they're in dresses. And you recall the famous line at the end, Joey Brown, when they're in a motorboat, and I think Joey Brown proposes uh, to Tony Curtis and Tony Curtis in the dress goes, um, I, I have to tell you, I'm a man. And Joey Brown just says, well, nobody's perfect. And off they <laughs> go in their motorboat. You couldn't even show that film now. I, uh, but, but I find it interesting because in that's 
the granddad and then the grandchild is this male to female, female to male transgender. Uh, so it's gone in three generations from wearing a dress for a laugh uh, to wearing a dress as part of some declaration of identity fulfillment. That's actually uh, the history of America in just three generations of the Curtis family. And the problem here is that is it all comes down to the, the, the people who will determine our future are that great mass of the masses that go along with the elite crapola. That's what's going to do for you. It's not, it's not so much Fauci himself. It's all the people who defer to Fauci. Well, uh, yeah, Fauci, uh, he's been wrong about everything, and he's up to his uh, neck in all this... Uh, gain-of-function stuff going on at uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, how, what are you talking about? I've, I've never heard that on NPR. Are you a virologist? Uh, no, I'm not. A, well, wait a minute. You're not going to be like that Mark Stein bloke uh, that uh, Michael Mann's suing because uh, he's expressing opinions on climatology, even though he's not a climatologist. No, no, you're not an expert. You shouldn't think about things. It's like that judge on the... We've got Supreme Court jurisprudence on this, or at least we've got Supreme Court chit-chat on it, uh, in which Supreme Court justices say that even they, and they are more expert than anybody else, they can redefine the millennia-old definition, as old as human history, of what marriage is. Uh, they can define the precise point at which it's okay uh, to uh, pull the head out of the uh, birth canal and plunge the scissors in the skull. They're expert enough for that. But even the Supreme Court justices know their limits and know that they are insufficiently expert to pronounce an opinion on what a woman is. You know, think of your neighbours. Think of your neighbours. You all know them. You all know them. Nobody wants to think about this stuff all the time. That's why we have experts. That's why they like experts. Oh, yes, you, you sent me this link on the internet and then... Uh, cousin Mildred sent me another link somewhere else. On the wouldn't I just rather leave it to nice Doctor Fauci to tell me what to think on that? And they're the people who are screwing the country. It is within the power of the people to end this pseudo technocracy of non-experts that we've been living under these last couple of years. But they have to take that. Greg says, this, let's here's a different one to end with. Greg says, in honour of the Grammys this weekend. Oh, God. I can't think of anyone better to ask their opinion about music copyright laws while we agree with the good intentions to compensate artists. Is this another case where the negatives outweigh the positives for society? Are copyright laws responsible for a general disappearance of music in our daily lives because many find it's no longer worth the expense and hassle to include musical accompaniment? And with copyrights extending 70 years beyond the life of the artists... 
Are they generally more beneficial to corporate bureaucracies rather than the artists? Even the Beatles started as a cover band. Would they be silenced today? Uh, a lot of this is a bit, uh, you're playing a bit fast and loose here. 70 years applies to the composer and lyricist of a song. Uh, due to an anomaly in American copyright law, uh, there is actually no expiry. You, you know, this, we, we pay to use the 100-year-old recordings we play on the 100 years ago show. The reason, but that's not the reason. I'm fully in favor of, I don't like the 70 years. They, they should have left it at 50 years. But the 50-year copyright period for for uh, as time goes by or over the rainbow or whatever you want to talk about, I think I think is reasonable and I support it. What we have now is that YouTube, for example, and um, uh, what was the thing before Spotify? Uh, it was a thing that was around for a couple of years. They basically established the idea that music is just free. People make it. You might uh, hire a symphony-sized orchestra to make it, and that's quite an expense. But when uh, I want to listen to it, I want to listen to it for free, so I go and get it from YouTube. YouTube has become, which is part of Google, has become the most powerful company on the planet, uh, basically by industrial-scale copyright theft. And one of the things that's done, uh, I, I think that's the reason why there's no music in our lives anymore and why music means less to today's youth uh, than it did 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years ago when you would be saving up uh, to have enough money to go and buy the new single by your favorite artist. Now it's all free on Spotify. Hey, yeah, uh, I, I thought I'd buy an LP, but um, it's, you know, I have to listen to it then, the 12 tracks in order. Now, instead of buying the LP, I can just steal it via YouTube or Spotify and put all the tracks in whatever order I like, dump the seven I'm not really interested in, and play the ones I like. That has deval That is what has devalued music. You know, the Grammys will be total rubbish. You'll be looking at people who will be twerking, and they'll be doing lively, uh, sexualized routines. But, but uh, wake me up if you actually hear something that would sound good as a tune with words if you were just playing it on the piano. The death of copyright will prove to be the death of music, Greg. On, <laughs> on which lively note, we shall uh, come to some music. Uh, as I said, we've been marking the centenary of Doris Day this weekend, so I'll leave Doris for uh, other outposts of Stein Online, including Rick McGuinness, who, as I said, has a rather different take from mine. But Monday sees another centenary, that of the composer Elmer Bernstein, born April the 4th, 1922, the last time I saw him. We were standing in the drawing room of Don Black's house, looking out the window at a quiet West London street and uh, chit-chatting about Elmer's great film, Walk on the Wild Side, while Don put a cuppa on. It was a very tame environment uh, in which to chew over the wild side. Uh, Elmer could score any kind of picture from Cape Fear 
and uh, Sweet Smell of Success, talking about Tony Curtis, to Airplane and the Blues Brothers. But this one from 1960 is one of the great movie scores of all time.
The Magnificent Seven by the Magnificent Elmer. Elmer Bernstein, born 100 years ago, April 4th, 1922. We'll have more music, plus Rick McGuinness's movie pick, plus a brand new tale for our time, all coming up at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free, stay magnificent. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.